welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Friday, May 3rd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Harris uses Trump's nasty comments to raise money, Jay Inslee releases an ambitious climate plan, Pete and Chastin Buttigieg are on the cover of Time magazine, Tim Ryan releases his tax returns, and candidates are asking for more donors to qualify for the debates, even the ones who already qualify. Huh. Well, here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. After Senator Kamala Harris questioned U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr in the Senate earlier this week, video of her skilled direct questioning went viral. So I covered this in yesterday's show. Go check that out if you haven't heard it. And then President Trump weighed in during an interview on Fox Business saying of Harris, quote, she was probably very nasty, end quote. This is actually the second time this week he has used that word in reference to Harris. In a Fox News interview earlier this week, he said she has, quote, a little bit of a nasty wit, end quote. On CNN, this whole nasty thing was summarized by an anchor, and then Harris was asked, quote, what's that about, end quote. And Harris responded, laughing just a little, quote, God only knows. Listen, let me be clear about how I think about what is important and what is before us. We have a president of the United States whose primary interest has been to obstruct justice. My primary interest is to pursue justice. You can call that whatever name you want, but I think that's what the American people want in a leader, end quote. And of course, this all brings back bad memories of 2016 in which Trump called Hillary Clinton a nasty woman. And of course, in response, Clinton supporters went ahead and made t-shirts and hats and pins with the slogan, Nasty Woman, on them, taking back the insult and turning it into a marker of their support for their candidate. So yesterday, Harris's campaign did basically that. They used the media moment to ask for support. Let me read from a Harris campaign email, quote, It seems like any time Donald Trump feels threatened by a strong woman, he lashes out with this gross, weird attack. It's the kind of sexism that makes me want to run my head through a wall. You'd think, after three years, he could at least come up with something more original, end quote. In a Washington Post piece, Chelsea Janes examines this latest moment in Harris's campaign as a possible breakthrough. Janes argues that at various points in her campaign so far, Harris has been unwilling to speak off the cuff or has had to walk back comments when she has. Reading from the piece, quote, Bakari Sellers, a former South Carolina state legislator who supports Harris and has campaigned with her, noted that at the CNN Town Hall event, Harris skirted several questions by saying she wanted to have a conversation about the subject. I understand the deliberateness, but you can't be cautious, Sellers said, saying, we're going to have a conversation about this. Sometimes people just want to be fed. They don't want a conversation. Just tell us what you think. On the trail, Harris seems to be feeling for the right balance between authenticity and discipline. Voters at her events often applaud her informal style and spontaneous wit and leave saying they feel a connection. But that relaxed approach can invite missteps. After Harris said she wanted to end private health insurance, for example, she softened that position and has repeatedly had to re-explain it. And quoting from Sellers again here, when the campaign sees you make a mistake, they try to bubble wrap you. People that knew Hillary Clinton knew her to be the funny, humble, intelligent person that she was, but a lot of people didn't get to see her because she was bubble wrapped. 
I just hope we don't bubble wrap Senator Harris, end quote. All right, now in a separate Washington Post piece by Eugene Scott, he puts the insults against Harris in the context of her being a black woman. He goes on to cite a laundry list of other insults this president has used against black women, including those who used to work closely with him. So these two articles together dig into how Harris has had to calibrate how she acts and speaks. And that is something I'm sure many of y'all can relate to. It is something that Harris, as a black woman running for president, has to grapple with constantly. And that is something worth discussing. So check the show notes for links to these two insightful articles. And I guess dust off your nasty woman shirts and hats and pins and whatever you got. Today, Washington Governor Jay Inslee released a policy plan to cut carbon emissions from vehicles, buildings, and utilities. This is part of Inslee's overall presidential campaign, which is solely focused on climate change. Reading from a Washington Post story about the plan, quote, By 2030, Inslee wants all new cars, trucks, and buses to be zero emissions, relying instead on battery power or renewable fuels. He also wants utilities to be weaned off coal, which produced 28% of American energy last year, and for new buildings to be built in a more energy-efficient way. These goals are scientifically necessary and are absolutely required if we're going to protect our families and country from the ravages of climate change, Inslee said in an interview. These are concrete actions. They're not ephemeral. They're not unicorns and rainbows. End quote. And the Post also offers useful insight on Inslee's history, because let's face it, he is not super well-known outside the Pacific Northwest. Quote, Inslee has spent much of his long political career, 15 years in Congress starting in the early 1990s, before becoming a governor six years ago, talking about the dangers of climate change and urging a transition of the U.S. economy to cleaner sources of energy. He co-wrote a book on the topic, Apollo's Fire, more than a decade ago. Washington state relies heavily on hydroelectric power. Coal accounts for about 15% of the state's energy, much of it imported. The state's lone coal-fired power plant is scheduled to close in coming years. End quote. Okay, so what does that plan say again? Well, it targets the year 2030 as a symbolic milestone. It's just one decade from the election. And it's the moment when the U.S. should produce all the new things, meaning specifically cars, buses, and buildings, so that they emit no carbon. Now, he does exclude certain heavy-duty vehicles from that, meaning large trucks and SUVs, and he sets a different standard for energy production. Specifically, he wants energy production to be carbon neutral by 2030, which basically means using carbon offsets but still burning some fossil fuels and then by 2035 to reach the zero carbon mark for power. And let's not forget buildings. Reading from a story in The Atlantic here, quote, The Inslee plan requires all new buildings constructed after 2030 to emit no greenhouse gases. This would effectively phase out gas stoves, gas ovens, and heating systems that burn oil or gas. Buildings pose an often forgotten climate problem for the United States. In 2018, emissions from buildings leaped by 10%, driving a national surge in carbon pollution, end quote. Inslee also talks at great length about how this plan would generate new jobs related to clean energy construction, auto manufacturing, and retrofits, 
and how it would benefit people who are currently suffering the effects of climate change. He also admits that different regions of the country will have to do different things to achieve the goals. That's an acknowledgement of the fact that in Washington state, for instance, there is a ton of hydroelectric power already in place. But different parts of the country don't have that. They will have to handle their power generation differently based on their locality. Inslee also offers a bunch of specific proposals for tax incentives for things like zero emission vehicles, electric cars, home retrofits, and so on. And here's a quote he gave ABC News on what happens to coal workers and their families if his plan is enacted. Quote, These folks who have worked in the coal industry are deserving of incredible respect and dignity. They are people whose contributions of multiple generations have literally built the economy of the United States. People who are doing really hard work and are deserving of our respect. And what we've done in the state of Washington, which is to make sure that as we go through this transition, that we also make sure we are caring for and embracing these communities to make sure they have a future as well. End quote. All right, so how much will this plan cost? Well, Inslee does not specify a cost, and that is a pretty major difference from the O'Rourke plan, which pegged its cost at $5 trillion over 10 years. So Inslee is here presenting another 10-year plan, but without a price tag. Okay, so that aside, how will Inslee pay for the plan? Well, he doesn't specify that either. Now, that's probably because he doesn't specify a cost to begin with, although he does say the existing economic impact of dealing with climate change is already costing us actual money, and his plan would mitigate that. So that is legitimately part of it. It's just unclear exactly how much it's part of it. He also talks about how things like efficient buildings will save money on heating and cooling costs while simultaneously giving a boost to construction and manufacturing jobs. He also talks about deploying wind and solar production on public lands, which would certainly be necessary to accomplish his goals. But again, these are all parts of the picture of how to get it done, but it's not dollars and cents in the way that some other policy proposals lay it out. The lack of a real accounting for the money part of this does stick out, but this is more of a vision. And the campaign actually explicitly likens it to a Kennedy-style moonshot that says, if we put our minds to it as a country, here are three very specific targets this country can achieve within 10 years. And in various news articles that I read on this today, experts consulted said that, yeah, it can be done. It's aggressive, but it's doable, and it's probably necessary. Now, just like the problem of putting people on the moon, there are a ton of details to be worked out along the way. It sure seems like Inslee hopes that by making an urgent call to action, he can inspire those solutions, just like Kennedy did in the 1960s. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. 
Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All right, a quick story here because this is a super big deal for mainstream media coverage of one candidate. The cover of the new issue of Time magazine features Pete and Chastin Buttigieg with the headline, First Family, the Unlikely, Untested, and Unprecedented Campaign of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. It's a lengthy profile that mixes both their home life, they've got rescue dogs and they're very cute, as well as their current political campaign. I want to read two short segments from the article here, and believe me, there are many, many pages more where this came from. First, quote, In many ways, Buttigieg is Trump's polar opposite. Younger, dorkier, shorter, calmer, and married to a man. His success may depend on whether Democrats want a fighter to match Trump or whether Americans want to change the channel, as Buttigieg puts it. People already have a leader who screams and yells, he says. How do you think that's working out for us? End quote. So that's the campaign stuff. Now to the awesome home life stuff, okay? Quote, the house looks like it's occupied by moderately tidy people who travel a lot. Coats are piled on the banister and old sneakers and a pair of Crocs are lined up next to the kitchen door. A tiny photo of Pete and Shaston with Cher peeks out from behind wedding save the dates posted on the fridge. The kitchen walls are a too bright yellow. The mayor painted them himself, which he says was a mistake, end quote. And there is even a photo in this thing of Pete Buttigieg as a kid playing Nintendo with his dad. It is amazing. Link in the show notes as always. And there is also a new Washington Post profile focusing on Chastin Buttigieg. Link to that too. And yes, it does talk about their first date, which involves scotch eggs and beer and a minor league baseball game. Okay, so somehow I missed this on Monday. Congressman Tim Ryan released 10 years worth of his tax returns earlier this week. And although Ryan is polling pretty low in the pack, hey, these are tax returns, I love my taxes, and I'm going to read them. All right, the basics here are that Ryan is married filing jointly like many of the candidates. He and his spouse brought in just over $221,000 last year. They paid more than $31,000 in taxes and claimed the standard deduction of $24,000 which is actually a change from previous years in which they itemized their deductions. And rewinding to 2009, the first year available, Ryan reported just over $156,000 in income, the vast majority of that being his congressional salary. At that point, he was unmarried. So over the years, Ryan has earned a little over $36,000 total for the three books he wrote in 2012, 2015, and 2018. Now, you can probably expect that 2018 book to bring in some more dough now that he's on the national stage, but just to point that out for the audience, you did not go into writing to get rich. Okay, so having reviewed Ryan's taxes, and so many, many taxes for this show, I can tell you there is nothing weird. There is nothing out of line here. Like many candidates, he is still slowly paying off student loans, he has a house, he has kids, and he gets minor tax credits for that stuff and his income is consistent over time. 
Tim Ryan, as a candidate in this field, is definitely on the lower end of the income spectrum, coming in slightly above Governor Jay Inslee. So the takeaway here is, frankly, not much to see. He is certainly not rich, his books have not been bestsellers, and that's about it. There is a link in the show notes to the actual 10 years of tax returns and also a couple of links to analysis, but the analysis is basically what I just said because there's just not a whole bunch there. And last up today, more on candidates working hard to qualify for the primary debates. Now, the first debates are set for June 26th and 27th, which are a Wednesday and Thursday. You might want to block out your calendars for that right now if you're a big election nerd like me, but don't worry, I will keep reminding you as we get closer. Anyway, the Democratic National Committee has set out two ways by which any candidate can qualify to be in those debates. One of the methods requires the candidate to have 65,000 individual donors, with at least 200 donors giving $1 or more from each of 20 different states. The other method is to get 1% or more in three separate polls from a list of polls that the DNC deems worthy. Okay, so here's the tricky part. The DNC can check the polling themselves because the polls are public, and so they already know, and we already know, who qualifies under that test. But the DNC needs proof that candidates who don't meet the polling method have reached that fundraising number. And they need that proof at least 14 days before the first debate, so they can do their whole qualifying process thing. So that seems to put the deadline for candidates to get all of their donor info in by at the latest June 12th, which is about five and a half weeks from now. And we have some major candidates who have not reached that threshold. The New York Times looked into this yesterday and identified some key candidates who have not yet qualified. They are Michael Bennett, who just announced yesterday, so like, give him a minute. Seth Moulton, who announced on April 22nd, so, you know, same thing. Wayne Messam and Marianne Williamson. Now, those last two have been running for quite a while, so for them, it's not so much an issue of timing. Williamson told the Times that she needs 6,300 more contributions from unique donors. Meanwhile, Wayne Messam has already reached the polling threshold in one poll, so he would need just two more polls to get in, and that's probably doable. Unfortunately, I don't have data on hand on where Messam is in terms of individual donors today, but his Q1 numbers were, in a word, rough. So polling is his best bet right now. Now, here's where it gets kind of weird. In a fundraising email this week, Cory Booker said he needs 1,592 more donors. And Julian Castro said he needs 2,000 more donors. Kirsten Gillibrand also reached out via email, not specifying a number, but saying she has not yet hit that 65,000 donor threshold. Now, all three of those candidates already get in the door via the polling method. So why are they asking for more donors? Well because of tiebreakers. The DNC says it will give preference to candidates that meet both criteria, both the polling thing and the donor thing, if the total number of candidates exceeds 20. And given that we have 22 major candidates on my list and possibly more coming, well, every candidate wants to get their shot. One more side note, although the Times ignores him, Mike Gravel appears to have around 30,000 donors, according to his campaign on Twitter. And by the way, props to them for immediately responding to my tweet asking for clarification and then engaging in a conversation about the complexity of the DNC rules. 
Anyway, point is, Gravel, with his 30,000 donors, is in serious danger of not making the cut, and his campaign is explicitly about one thing and one thing only. That is, being in those first two debates. So, good luck, Mr. Gravel. Well, that's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, a big thank you to all the folks who wrote in on Twitter to say, yes, we love hearing clips of the candidates actually talking. Well, good, because I do too, and the decision is unanimous. So I'm going to find relevant clips in the coming days, and I will use them in the show when possible. So thanks again, happy Cinco de Mayo, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. 